What I do is I say, you need a process. The process needs to do really three, at a minimum, three things. It needs to uncover the behavioral characteristics that you are looking for, including like how well does it, will this person fit in with, what will they bring? What will they take from? How will they change the already existing culture? Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Nigel Green. Nigel's an author and the co-founder of Business of Primary Care and the CRO at Affirm Health. And in our conversation today, Nigel and I are focusing on one of his specialties, which is teaching companies how to more effectively hire salespeople. So we dig into why is it so difficult to hire sellers? We explore the big mistakes that most companies make in their hiring process, and among those being lack of a well-defined hiring process, lack of rigor and how that plot process is applied, as well as poor interviewing techniques. Nigel also shares his six steps for selecting the right candidates, and we get into why he considers onboarding part of the hiring process. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Nigel, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. All right, let's jump into it with Nigel Green. Nigel, welcome back to the show. Andy, this is one of my favorite shows to be on. So thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, pleasure to have you here. Gosh, I have to work harder, so I make myself the show, the most important show you want to go to. So, well, I'll tell you this. The, yeah, the, the only other I, I have, uh, you know, if you've ever been on with Larry Levine and Daryl mm-hmm. Amy, those guys mm-hmm. are just, they're, they're, it's a different animal. But this is, this, I'll tell you, this is going to be a deeper, more intellectually stimulating reason why I like coming oh. here. I love you, Daryl and, and Larry, if you're listening to this, but Andy's got you beat when it comes to that. All right. Well, okay. Hopefully we just didn't turn off the audience by saying we're going to be intellectual, but <laughs> we're not well, they're here to learn. They're here to learn. They're here to learn. That's true. Well, they're they're going to learn. So for folks who maybe didn't hear, you know, our first interview on the show, which was a year plus or so ago, tell us about you and what you do. Yeah. So I help quickly scaling companies that have a B2B sales team not let the sales team be the reason they're not hitting their sales target. So I've built a career uh, mostly in the middle market. And for those that are wondering what the middle market is, companies that do anywhere between 10 and $50 million in annual revenue have a B2B mm-hmm. offering. I have led those sales teams. I have been a part of those sales teams. And now I consult and advise uh, and join the board of those companies and work with the founders and the management team to not make the same silly mistakes that I made when I was leading uh, sales teams of the same size. Yeah, I think that's a great sweet spot to have. I, yeah, back when I would start my consulting company back in the year 2000 and uh, for the next 12, 13 years, that, yeah, I found that companies of that size uh, had a different set of problems that were oftentimes more interesting. I found companies I was working with in similar capacity, you were, is they had, yeah, grown maybe to 10, 15, and then they sort of lost the recipe. As they were trying to trying to scale and and uh, yeah, it's always a great challenge to come back in and help them get back on track. What one of the things, and we're going to talk about it today, is the the type of rep and really the type of team that got you to ten million. Probably the team you need to go from ten to thirty and fifty looks different. The the people are wired a little bit differently. The tools you need to give them are different. Yeah, the way you pay them needs to be different. And those, those are the types of problems that uh, help them work through. 
And the leaders are different. Yes, the leaders are different. Yeah, I mean, I think this idea that, uh, yeah, let's take one idea that's not around much anymore, but it was, you know, lifetime employment, right? I mean, if you had, I think the companies that you joined that pretty much were sort of places you could work for 20, 30, 40 years were companies that already sort of gone through that phase, right? They were bigger companies, they were established, and they weren't going through these growth stages. And yeah, you know, people have a hard time sort of adjusting this idea is that, well, really, you know, people are, there are people who are good at certain stages and they should sort of specialize in that. And when you hire a seller, you're not hiring somebody to necessarily build a career. You're hiring a seller to, for a specific job. And that job is for the next three years. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting that I, I think we should maybe call out is so like this lifetime employment notion uh, to speak to that. I am in a couple of situations now where we're hiring a sales leader and the employment contract has a term. So mm-hmm. it, it doesn't mean that they're gone at the end of that term, but it's kind right. of like coaches and other sports where it's like, we're going to do a three-year deal or a two-year deal. And they're learning, both parties are learning that forever is a little bit Pollyanna. So let, let's let's uh, let's do this for a few years and see if we still want to stay together. And if, if, if you're the right company that I want to be in in three years, and if I'm the right leader you need in three years. Yeah, my point, absolutely. My point was that oftentimes the leadership requirements changes. Yeah, as you talked about, different size company, different size deals maybe you're working is, and there's no shame in that. Right. Some people are really good at certain things is is we should encourage them to be good at those things. They don't need to be good at everything. So I I think that this idea is certainly in sales and in leadership in sales is you should look at your jobs as assignments. Yeah, somebody once sort of equated it to like a uh yeah, an enlistment period or yeah, whatever the military term they use is, you know, you're signing up for this period of time. And, yeah, you reevaluate, reevaluate at the end and say, okay, has things changed? Do we need somebody different? And if it's not you, hey, that's sort of okay. So one skill, and I'll offer a broad sweeping generalization that I see pretty consistently for sales leaders at this size of company, mm-hmm. they're all – think that they're good at, but I'm telling them, and I will tell anyone listening, you're not very good at hiring salespeople. Well, yeah, but isn't that like a, just sort of a weak point all the way around? Almost regardless of the size of the company. I mean, some companies maybe think they do it better than others, but yeah, we just look at performance and turnover and so on. It sounds like it's just a big problem all the way around. It is a big problem all the way around. Uh, specifically in at the companies that I, the, the size of companies I work in, like, it, it, yes, it is a big problem. Uh, later stage, more established, publicly traded companies account for turnover, account for attrition, mm-hmm. uh, account for a certain percentage of reps that are going to hit quota. Um, these mid-market companies, they don't, they haven't figured that out yet because it's all right. new to them. And so they they are really struggling at understanding what their talent pipeline needs to look like, what, where it needs to be by stage. They haven't, they haven't quite yet understood that hiring for salespeople is not a reactionary exercise where it's like, well, we need Mm -hmm. two more people. Let's go to market and find them. You have to always be doing it. Uh, 
Um, so that's well, the, yeah, that's question. one of the challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask a question about that. So what percentage of their time should a sales leader in a company the size you talk, mid-market company, I said 10 to 50 million, how much of their time should they spend devoted toward, you know, filling that pipeline of potential recruits and hiring people, uh, you know, ongoing basis. And what would be your take on that? I think the minimum 15%, I think, um, a good, a good healthy number is honestly 25% of your time. And that's going to seem like when I say that, Nigel, that you're telling me uh, one out of every four days, I need to be dedicating to recruiting and, and the whole idea of hiring salespeople. And I'm saying, if you want to build a best in class team, I, I really do think that you need to spend that much time. And, and the way, the reason here, here's what I mean by, mm-hmm. if you think about that much time, not all of it is going to be actively to fill an open position. Some of it is in preparation or uh, anticipation of what you might need. You're interviewing people that aren't looking for jobs. You're talking to folks about roles that you don't yet have, Mm -hmm. but so much of your time, because you move so fast in the stage of these deals where typically they're equity backed or venture backed and you're on it, you're on the clock. You're on the clock for three years, five years. Sometimes the timeline gets, uh, it gets sped up because of other factors in the business. And so where you get caught um, off your game is when the CEO or the COO or, or the chief revenue officer comes to you and says, yeah, they, they want to hire 10 more people. And you, you haven't thought about that yet. Or you need to add another type of seller or you, you just acquired this company that's got a new offering and you decided that you need a specialty sales force to do that. And so I, I don't think, I think they don't spend enough time proactively talking with candidates that aren't looking for a job about roles that they don't yet have. And that's where a lot of the challenge comes in. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of put that under the heading of, and I agree with that percentage, by the way, is, is I think that's in the, certainly in the right ballpark is, is this idea of capacity building, right? Is, is <clears throat> you're a sales leader, job's just not all about closing orders. It's, and you know, it's how are you building the capacity of the organization to hit the goals that you're setting out? And yeah, manpower, labor is a huge part of that capacity building. So you look at that for me, you always look at that perspective and it's like, okay, well that, yeah, spend a quarter of your time working on building the capacity of the organization to hit current and future goals. That sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah. So, you're saying companies in this size generally not great at hiring. So what are the big mistakes you see that they're making in their hiring process, aside from not developing or not spending enough time devoted toward building their pipeline of candidates? Uh, an over, over emphasis or too much weight on uh, what they've all, what they used to do, what they did for another company, what they did six months ago versus, uh, how much are we going to like spending time together? Uh, so I, I call it, I break it down into three C's. So you've got competency, which is the, the stuff that they've used to done. Are they technically sound? Can they uh, orchestrate a demo? Can they use technology? Do they understand the tech stack? Can they ask the right questions? All that's competency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you have to be competent at that. 
But here's the here's the catch, and here's where a lot of leaders get wrong. They they spend too much time on that and not enough of do we have common ground? Do we have shared passions? Do they care about what this business does for our customers? Are they bought into how our company is uniquely positioned to solve a problem? Do uh, do they compete in a certain area outside of work and that makes them better at work? Are they naturally a reader? Are they curious? Are they going to be someone that's bringing ideas to me because they read this book? Or are they going to be reading Harry Potter? And none of that's a criticism. It's just you have to know that the people you hire on your sales team, even if they're all competent, you're going to spend more time with them than you do your friends and your your spouses, your partners. So if you don't enjoy being around them, when they call and need you, are you going to be as available and as an emotionally accessible and excited about being there with them? Or is it going to feel like a chore or another rep that needs you to do something? And so one of the questions I always ask a sales leader before they decide to hire someone is, I get it. They know how to do the job. Their references work. Personality test is great. If you got stuck on the tarmac by them in a plane and it was going to be an hour. They weren't going to let you get off the plane and you had to sit by this rep. Would you be excited about that time with them? And if the answer is no, you can't hire them. That's interesting. I've never heard that as an acid test, but it makes, I mean, it makes sense. You're not trying to emphasize people is you're not hiring a salesperson. You're hiring a member of a team. And yeah, part of that thing with the team is just the point you're just making is are these people you want to be spending time with? Exactly. And, and the pro teams in sport, they, they understand this. It's like, yes, this person can hit free throws. Yes, this person has a batting average. How are they going to fit in with the other 10 guys that go on the field or the other four ladies on the court? Like mm-hmm. we have to what's it going to be like when I put this person in the locker room? Yeah, they can score. But what's Sally going to say about it? Or how's Johnny going to feel about you? And I think a lot of sales leaders are really terrible about doing that work. And I think a a part of the reason why they're really bad at it is they are so desperate because they don't spend enough time in the recruiting. They see a competent person and they feel like, well, I can check that box and move on to one of my other responsibilities around training or closing business or expense management. I can get this done and move on with it. Right. Yeah. It's so funny is, you know, for a position that's so important as how often expediency enters into the equation when it comes to hiring decisions. And it's just the perspective they need to take, sales leaders need to take, is just as a salesperson does. Is, you know, what, what is your pipeline? Do you have the luxury of seeing you know, more candidates than you need? Or, hey, just you're single-threaded, you've got one prospect, and, oh my gosh, we better, we better take this person because they seem reasonably competent and we don't miss out on the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so questions I get around this is, okay, well, practically, how do you do that, Nigel? And I say, well, okay, you can... Invite them to shadow somebody on the team for half a day, even in a virtual world. They don't have to come into the office. You can say, hey, Andy, here's Andy. He lives in San Diego. You're in Nashville, but you guys are going to do a day together. You're going to do it a half a day in Andy. I'm happy to pay you for your time because I don't, don't want to take advantage of you. You come hang out with Andy, and I'm going to ask you how the day went, and I'm going to ask Andy at the end of the day, is that somebody that you, if you had to do another day with, what, what do you right. think? 
That, that's one practical way. Um, as you get into hiring other managers that will manage your sales team, one thing that I have, and it, it's controversial, but I don't care. I, I do it. I like to do, if you have a partner or a spouse, I want to do a, a partner or spouse interview. I want to meet your partner and get a sense for, do they understand, can they tell me what it is that you do? How well is the is the family or that partnership dynamic how is it going to jive with the work that you need to do? And a lot of people roll their eyes at that. But look, when you when you have a team that's got to do something special in three to five years, it's important. Well, it's interesting. I've yeah, I've heard people want to take people out to dinner and yeah, you know, with the partner and so on. But what you're saying is actual one-on-one interview. And, and so maybe an interview is not the right word, but it's a conversation. What I'm trying to get a sense for is. Is this does is everybody in this partnership on board with this person coming to work and understand that there may be travel requirements or that there might like how how well aligned because if your family life if your home life if your relationships are off you're not going to be good for me at work yeah so I'm interested in how you how you broach that that part of the conversation where you're saying yeah I think we're yeah we're heading down a right track here with the candidate um, yeah next up I'd really like to be able to talk with your partner. This is how I wrote it. I say, hey, Andy, uh, I really am excited about you being a part of this team. One of the things I've learned after doing this for a number of years is that you and I are going to talk to each other every day. You're going to be in the favorites on my iPhone. I'm probably going to call you when I'm on a run and have a an idea. And, and we have to just be in, in lockstep. I want to do I'm, if I'm doing work with you, I want to do life with you. And so to that end, it's really important to me to try to get a sense for who you are outside of work. I want to learn what's important in your family, what some of your financial goals are, what some of your mm-hmm. guiding philosophies are, about the way you think about family, the way you think about work outside of life. And I'd love to just get to know your partner and, and have them to get a chance to know me and try to understand what they expect from me so that I can be a good leader for you and respect some of your familial commitments, some of your out of work commitments. And then I can just try to get a sense for um, how I can be a good leader for you and your family. And I, and when we're having that conversation, I say, did you know that you, you have you guys had a conversation about the comp plan? You know that this is how much money is guaranteed. Do you know that this is how much he he or she can stand to make? Have you thought about the way that fits in with your family budget? Not just are you going to meet your your monthly expenses, but does this help achieve your three to five year goals? Like, do you, do you put some in your midterm savings? Are you going to, are you planning to max out your 401k? How are you guys doing? What are some of your goals? Tell me about, are you going to have kids? Okay, great. Do you, you have a child with special needs? I need to know that. I need to be flexible around that. So those are the kind of questions that come up uh, in the, in that kind of spousal conversation. That I think go a long way in, in making sure that it's a great fit not just for the person, but for the people that do life with him. So what sort of responses do you get? I mean, this is interesting because I, I absolutely agree that, that having this level of understanding of, of someone that's part of your team as a leader is really important, right? Because otherwise, how can you help them most effectively if you don't really know what their aspirations are, what their goals are, what the requirements are, what the family situation is, what's really important to them, what's really driving them? Uh but I hadn't really thought about it in an interview context as opposed to post hire, but that's no, I like it. I like it. That's a really, that's a different approach. I like that. Well, the question you asked, you know, what kind of responses do I get? Uh, Generally very like warm at first. They're like, you want to do what about, and I, and I explain it the way I did it to you. And they're like, 
okay. Um, what I want the candidate to know at this point is that I care about them. And like, I, I will be a failure if you come here and leave in six months, if you come here and leave in a year because it wasn't a good fit, not because you got some great opportunity that you had to say yes to, you couldn't, you know, if, if you leave here because you're unhappy, I have failed you, I failed your family and I failed the company. So right. I'm coming, I'm trying to figure this out. And if you're not open to that, then I don't know that this is a good fit anyway. No, I, I, that's not different. I like it. I like it. Um, I mean, I think there's, I think the room in the hiring process, for the reasons you talked about up front, which is that it's still done badly in most places, is for a lot of, a lot of innovation. So I'm sort of interested to hear your, your take on what you're seeing with, because you're doing a lot of work with companies on sales hiring, is, yeah, I sort of, three things I sort of see as big faults, uh, and that's certainly not the only ones, but, uh, you know, one is, Companies don't have sort of a standardized way to measure and compare candidates. So really just making emotion-based decisions and not using data. And to that end, maybe they don't have a standardized interview process that really makes sense. That An interview process is designed to take as much of the emotion out of it as possibly can. And then the other thing is I don't see companies tracking back to say, okay, you know, we, yeah, we, we, maybe we have a scorecard and we hired people based on these attributes and a scorecard and then going back with future hires and saying, okay, well, these are the attributes we thought were important that we hired. How did they perform? And sort of, you know, teach yourself what to do differently going forward. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the, the simple answer to that, to your, um, your line of thinking there is most companies don't. So what, what I do is I say, you need a process. Okay. The process needs to do really three, at a minimum, three things. It needs to uncover the behavioral characteristics that you are looking for, including like how well does it, will this person fit in with, what will they bring? What will they take from? How will they, how will they change the already existing culture? Okay. Two, do they have like because selling is not sales is not sales is there the way in which they have sold the the customers they've sold to the mm. tech they've used the tactics that they use does it match well with the way our top performers are succeeding so for example if if your interview process doesn't allow for uh, chances to match the way your customers want to buy. So if your customer expects you to present some type of ROI analysis before they sign, if you sell a complex offering, mm -hmm. if you if you don't have some type of exercise in the in the process where you say, "Hey, Andy, here is um, here's a tool. Here's what our tool does. Here are the problems that it might solve for a customer. Here are the inputs that our customers typically." You run against this tool to see if there's an, if you don't do that, well, then your interview process is flawed. And so, so that's the second thing. And then the third so thing, it, testing. some I, type I, of I, testing, right? Testing on, can they sell the way our customer wants to buy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. more specifically? Right. And then the third thing is, uh, and, and this is kind of separate, but kind of different from the behavioral piece is how bad do they really want it? 
like I think the interview process needs to have some type of testing around are do they really want this? Is it a job or is it the job for them? In that situation, can't you find people who you think perhaps want it too much? You can. <laughs> I mean, that's that's another another you know area of concern perhaps when you're interviewing people. Um yeah, no, I so let's let's go back to the testing part because I think this is is hugely important and again not not done enough. And I'm not talking about off the shelf, you know, personality assessments and so on because I'm very mixed mind about the value of those other than just sort of a, a data point. Um but I agree 100%. It's, you know, testing for specific skills or attributes that buyers need that you need absolutely essential and it's just again i don't see it done enough i think sometimes companies are worried about offending candidates by asking them to do things um, i had one client where i was helping them hire a vp of sales and got down to the sort of final two candidates and one of the candidates just when they asked them to they would just test the critical thinking skills they and this, so they put a scenario out as you know hey what would you do in this instance in terms of entering this new marketplace and so on and so forth. Yeah. One page sales plan, explain it to us. Yeah. When we meet and the person said, no, I'm not, not going to do that. <laughs> it's like they were insulted, right? They sort of asked and I just think, yeah, never hire without that. Well, here's a test that I run more and more frequently in the last couple of years that I'd love to, to use. I'd love for you to validate. I think your validation would be important for me. I have developed a strong opinion that in order to sell software, complex offerings, or to a buyer that finds themselves uh, smart and sophisticated, if you can't write copy, you can't sell. Mm. If you don't understand how to make a compelling point quickly on LinkedIn, that pulls people in, but based on not just importance, but relevance, mm -hmm. you can't sell. And so I have recruiters that I work with because a lot of what I do now is I act as an intermediary between the company that I work, that I consult with right. and these recruiting agencies that feed me candidates. And they send right. me these candidates with beautiful resumes. I mean, great resumes. And I say, I go, I say recruiter, they have 468 LinkedIn connections. Their last post was eight months ago. <laughs> they just don't get it, man. And and they're like, yeah, but look at their. I'm like, it's not going to work. I that won't work. We won't have chemistry together because I don't think they understand how to pull people in in today's social selling environment. And I don't want to work with someone like that. Yeah, well, there's multiple things at play there, which I and I absolutely buy into that. I mean, I gosh, I don't know how many hundreds of people get upset at me last year when I posted this post is I wouldn't hire a seller who wasn't active on LinkedIn. And people just like thought I was being discriminatory. And it's like, well, no, this is the world we operate in. To your point precisely, are you able to have a point of view and opinion about something that's relevant to your buyers that you want them to see? And if you can't write that clearly and concisely, in a way that makes it attractive for them to read, then yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I've, even before 
LinkedIn existed. I always insist on seeing writing samples from sellers, candidates, because I agree with you. I think written communication is really important, and it's not all about writing it like a LinkedIn post, which is a great skill to have, but also be able to write you know, compelling proposal, compelling email, uh, compelling ROI justification. Yeah, being able to write, hugely important for me. Well, and so in my course, my hiring salespeople course, I have one of the defined steps is a written assessment. And th- that's probably the step that I get the pushback on the most from the companies I work with. Do we really need to do this? And I say, writing is a window to the way someone thinks. Yes. It tells you, do they ramble? Do Are they informal when they need to be formal? Do they think text messaging and email is the same platform? Mm-hmm. Uh, you you have to do this because they will they will be your brand and a lot of the customers and prospects that you want to acquire their first impression of your brand will be that email that linkedin post and if yeah. you don't like it you, you, it's not going to be good for you oh yeah and when and we've talked about this on the show quite a bit is various sources of data research I think one of the first ones that said it was a challenger sale is, hey, the majority of the buyer's purchase decision is based upon their experience with the individual seller. And yeah, those it's not just first impressions, so it's follow-on impressions as well, but certainly first impressions really important. Is yeah, before a buyer talks to you, they're looking at your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, you know, that there's a study done published in a book in 1980, excuse me, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I was going 19 yards, 2020. That's even at that time, this is, you know, right at the start of the pandemic. And I'm sure it's gone up since then is that 82% of buyers looked at a seller's LinkedIn profile before they spoke with them. I think it's higher now. Let's assume it's hundred percent. So what are they seeing when they go there? Uh, uh, sometimes it's um, no picture or a, like a bogus background image. Uh, yeah. Like and sometimes it's their resume on in the featured section, and I'm like, okay, you. Okay. So there's a lot of things that they're seeing. I know what they should see, and uh, I think that a, a lot of a lot of you know, again, it's controversial, but I think a lot of companies uh, need to really lean into the fact that in order to be successful in selling today, you need to understand writing specifically how to write on LinkedIn and how to use your mm-hmm. profile to to be your own first impression. I mean, I, I, I sort of hate to use the word, but yeah, your own brand. But yeah, but I, I like to say to be to show your identity as a seller. And here's the other thing that I think um, while we're talking on other kind of mistakes. Uh, when was the last time you called a reference that was provided to you by a salesperson? And it didn't it wasn't a glowing review. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're cherry picked, obviously. Right. So I don't do that. So I have one of the interviews uh, in the process is it's a very it's called the I call it the Who interview. I just took it right out of GH Smart's book named Who. They have a very scriptive interview where you ask the same set of questions for every job that that person has. It's a formula you can follow for any type of role. I've just mm-hmm. adopted it for hiring salespeople. Right. And the reason I do that is because I'm picking your references. When you told me about you closed that $3 million deal with that hospital system, I'm going to say, 
who was on the buying committee. Right. Give me two of those people. And if you can't, if you can't say, yeah, call, call Joe, call Johnny, that's a red flag for me. And, and, And it's not to say that you may have lost touch with them and you may not have their contact information, but I will tell you, I'm going to send them a LinkedIn message. I'm going to try to get in touch with them. And mm. I'm going, I don't want your references. I have my references. I'm going to try to get in touch with them. And some of them are like, you can't do uh, that. okay. <laughs> yeah. Why would you do that? To, and, and so I'm like, did you close the deal or did, are you cr- claiming you closed the deal that you didn't close? I mean, what's Johnny going to say when I called? Oh, you led, you had 15, you had 15 salespeople on your team and they were all at quota. Give me three names of the people that, that hit their quota three years in a row. I'm going to call them and ask them, did they hit their quota three years in a row? Yeah, I, I firmly believe that somebody has something on the resume. They should be able to provide a resource to substantiate it. And I think there are not enough companies doing that. I think they say, could you just provide us with two references? And then they call them and, of course, what do you expect to hear? Great. It's just a waste of everybody's time. So here's a question about when do you when do you make those reference calls? Because I I advocate doing it much earlier. Do it before you've made, made most reference check is done after you've made a decision to hire somebody, right? So your uh, your you know cognitive bias at that point in time is not to hear something that's going to be necessarily negative about that person. Because you already made that emotional commitment to them. So I think you call references much earlier in the process. And it's, it's I do. The process as well, yeah. And so here's a hack. And so and this goes into why I spend 25% of my time when I'm leading sales team in the recruiting process. It's because I do fundamentally so many more reference checks. But here's what I'm also doing in reference checks. I'm calling that reference and, and I'm saying I'm calling you about Andy. Yeah, Andy's good. I, I'm glad Andy's good. Is there somebody you know that's better than Andy? And then they're like, well, you know, actually, there's Sally that we actually stole the business from Andy. She's tell me about Sally. So I'm I am using reference checks and I and I will ask specifically like in healthcare, a lot of times the references are like procurement or materials managers mm-hmm. or like, like they're in supply chain. I ask, I just flat out ask them. I say, tell me the like top five most dangerous reps. You, you've worked with? Like, who are they? Who are the best? I just want to know them. I don't care what they're selling. I just want to know who you think is the absolute best. And they'll tell me and they laugh. They think it's hilarious. And I just say, I just want to know them. I'm going to call them. Mm-hmm. And so reference checks are a great way to get your next best candidate. Uh, I like it. Uh, again, another thing I hadn't really heard anybody talk about before is, is, yeah, how to use reference check as a way to get recommendations for other candidates. Yeah, wouldn't that be a wouldn't that be a pisser if you make a reference check on somebody and you ask for you know somebody better and you hire that person, not the person you did the reference check on? Hey, it's life, right? Well, my job is to hire the best candidate. Best. And this right. is an opportunity to ask someone who I would say is a qualified resource, mm-hmm. is there a better candidate out there? I like that. So but let me ask another question. So what question do you ask at the reference though? Here's my favorite question. I say, get real with me. Leader to leader. Would you hire this person? And I just let it get really quiet. And I just, I say it in that same way. Just get real with me. Leader to leader. Would you hire this person? And if there is any pause, it's a no. Even if it's a yes, if there's any pause, 
in my mind, I'm trying to walk myself out of a no. If it's not a very quick, hey, Nigel, absolutely, you, I'd hire this person right now. If it's, well, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm talking myself out of a no. Because the what I've learned is that if it really is a yes, there's no hesitation in that reference whatsoever. They say, yeah, absolutely, real talk, I would hire that person. And so what you get sometimes, though, is you get this pause of like they're trying to think about conditions and they're trying to say, well, yeah. I'm, tr- I'm trying to make sure this person would fit in your dynamic. But the sellers that are really in my experience, and there probably are exceptions, but in my experience, the sellers that have been some of the best. When I ask that question, their reference is very quick to say unequivocally, you, you'd be a fool not to hire this person. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't care what the role is. You'd be a fool not to hire them. And again, because it's bigger, it's bigger than competency. It's about like this character and chemistry. It's not enough to do the job. Well, it's how this person carries themselves. It's how they live their life. It's more than just closing a deal. It's did they, did they do life with this customer? Did they go above and beyond? Are they like, it's just all these things that you can't really teach. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've used that and I've, I mean, I, I, for me, I can sort of tell the difference between different forms of enthusiastic yeses because some just don't seem real authentic. I mean, another question that I'll pair with that oftentimes is, so again, you know, you're leader to leader. What advice could you give me in terms of what I should be coaching this candidate on when they join her? What are the areas you think I need to work with them the most on? I always find that very illuminating because oftentimes you get pretty frank feedback about weaknesses that perhaps you hadn't spotlighted or uncovered during the interview process or at all. And it gives you more information to think about is, huh, is this person really coachable? Have they been working with this person on this this particular skill set? And they just, you know, they weren't paying attention or they tried, they weren't able to adapt. Um, I just find that's another question reference check that's very useful i like that so um let's talk about interviews because this is another big topic that at least for me and you've talked about hey going through and asking the exact same questions on experiences but i found more modern approaches to interviewing is you see companies that yeah they'll have a day where they bring a person in they're going to talk to four people five people whatever Every interviewer asks the same questions in the same order of the candidate. None of these, oh, I've got my favorite interview question. I want to use it, right? This was always, this always separates the good ones from the bad ones. And instead, it's, yeah, you develop this set of questions ahead of time. Everybody asks the exact same questions, same order, so that when they get together and debrief, they have a common frame of reference to use to say, okay, well, how'd this person answer this for you, or for you, and for you? Were they consistent? Was it the same answer? And you get a really good sense of somebody that way. You, you can. And here is, I'm not saying that's a bad practice. Here is one potential danger. And, and I talk about this. Mm-hmm. I, I, my grandfather told me, he said, Nigel, if you ever sit down at the poker table and you can't find the sucker, it's you. <laughs> and and, and here, here's where I'm going with that, okay? Salespeople are professional interviewers. 
So if, if I were to be interviewing in that format with a company that I was going to talk to four executives and they were going to ask me the same questions, you know, I am going to pretty well stick to a talk track because I've been trained as a seller how to tell the customer, not manipulate them, but understand what it is that they want to hear and give it to them in a way that satisfies the question. So I'm going to do that in a way to to try to manipulate the outcome for what I want, which is to get the job. And so if those executives don't understand that dynamic, it's really hard when they come back to group together to understand did you all get told the same load of BS? <laughs> well, but I was going to say, is a point I was going to make is, is to your point precisely, though, is that, and I think sort of the genius of, of doing it this way, because you have, maybe you have a sales manager, maybe you've got, you know, CFO, and, you know, in your group of four or five, you got, you know, different job titles doing it, is I think the natural tendency is for the candidate to try to shape the story may be the same talk track, but to shape it differently for each person based on what they think they want to hear. And, and it's then I think you begin to surface the inconsistencies. And as you, to your point, as, you know, if there's BS, the BS gets displayed very, very, very brightly at that point. Uh, yeah, so it, it can do that. But I think it yeah. truly comes down to the sophistication of the four interviewers to be able to discern that versus, well, I love the way Nigel answered my question. Yeah, I love that he kind of put a nuance to it. Like, you've got to have a little bit of savvy amongst that team to understand right. what you're dealing with. Well, and so, yeah, I think you allude to this in, in something I was reading about your program, is is you have to train interviewers. I mean, this idea of just, hey, let's pull people off, you know, other jobs, and, hey, talk to this person, I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think you you go through these questions, you explain what the purpose of the question is, and you role play this with people. You have them ask questions. You you train your interviewers. Specifically train them on how to tactfully ask very uncomfortable questions. Yeah. And here's here's the importance of that. So if if I can ruffle your feathers during an interview, I immediately have questions about how you're going to handle this economic buyer that just beats you down or this, this technical buyer that knows your product better than you and eats it alive. How are you going to handle that? And so uh, one of my very first interviews is it's just a rapid fire interview. It's 30 minutes long in the first 15 minutes. I tell the candidate, Hey Andy, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions that seem random. I promise you there's a method to my madness. And if at any point, I cut you off in an answer. I'm not trying to be rude. It's just that you've given me what I want. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to move on to another question. Mm -hmm. Is that cool? And I will ask them questions that they are not expecting to hear. And I, and I don't care what they say. I'm just trying to hear how they respond to some of the questions I'm about to ask them. Just to see, are they, are they unflappable? Are they, can they roll yeah. with the punches? Can they match my energy? Are they going to shut down? That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> well, I'm laughing because... Yeah, I've told the story in the show before is, is my first interview for first job out of college is, yeah, I get brought into this selling computer systems, you know, room full of metal for accounting applications for companies, right? Businesses. 
So I need to know accounting, which I had taken in college. But I get pulled in this conference room with the hiring manager. He basically just introduced himself, give him his first name. It sits across the table from me. And the first question out of his mouth was an accounting question. It wasn't, how are you doing? It wasn't, you know, tell me about you. It wasn't, wasn't anything. It was an accounting question. And I froze. <laughs> I just went, yeah, I felt like one of these things that lasted for 30 minutes where it's just like, uh. <laughs> but I recovered. I said, you know, I know the answer to that question, but I just can't pull it into my mind right now. You saw I took accounting. It's on my transcript. How about if I go home and look up the answer and call you tomorrow with it? And he got up at that point and left the room. And I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God, what did I do? My first job. How am I going to tell my parents about this? Um, and then a few minutes later, another gentleman comes in. He says, he introduced himself. He said he was the boss of the whole, <clears throat> whole office. And he said, so I was just talking to Ray. Ray says he wants to hire you. That was my interview. I mean, I had a much longer interview with the, the chief boss, believe me. But uh, with Ray, that was it. Yeah, the fact that I wouldn't try to BS him, but also that I apparently recovered gracefully. So we, I hired a sales leader a few months ago for a company. And um, one of the things that, that I knew was going to be important to success in this role is being able to deploy he, he, this person to he, because it was a male that we hired. But the candidate, uh, whoever got the job, was going to have to manage about $1.2 million a month in variable expenses uh, to support the sales team. Tech, yeah. marketing. And so right. um, I knew that some, like in order to be successful, they, they had to understand a little bit about budgets and, and how to run a P&L. And so I asked the candidate a question. I said, how much money is in your checking account? He looked at me and, and he gave me the answer. And I said, how much is in your savings account? And then he, he told me, and I said, how much money do you move every month from your checking to your savings account? And, and why do you think you need that much money in your savings account? It doesn't matter what the numbers are. I just, I just asked him. Mm. And when he got the job, he said, you know, I never asked. I said, why, why, why in the hell did you care about that? And I said, because here's the thing. In this job, you won't be successful if you miss the revenue target, but you hit, you came in at budget. You came in at budget. And so I needed to know if you lived your life in a way that it was more important to you to look at the number in your savings account versus like, is it enough? And as long as it's enough, I'll continue to spend money in other areas, not just leave it in my savings account. And you, and you, you gave me that in the way you answered the question. And I knew you weren't going to be a sales leader that came up in six months from now and was like, well, I we're on, we're on budget. I'm like, no, spend more money. I'd rather you not be on budget. Hit this revenue target. Go spend more money. And he was like, I never thought of that. I'm like, but that I, I'm going to ask those kind of questions because I need to know that very early before we get into this too far. Yeah. Well, I think that's sort of the general point we've sort of been veering towards is is yeah these things that you sort of think about uh, we do later in the interview processes now. Do them up front, right? Reference checks, do them as early as you can. You're going to learn something about these people. You're going to disqualify if they're not the right fit based on these criteria. You're going to test, test early. Too often these things are all done after you've made sort of this decision. You don't hire this person. And then you'll overlook something because you think, oh, I'm at the end of this onerous task of hiring somebody. Yeah, this wasn't quite right. A little bit of red flag. Ah, never mind. Let's just hire them. And then it turns out badly. For a lot of companies, it, it's turning out badly. 
Um, yeah. I, I, it's been it's eighteen months for a sales leader, and depending on the source, I mean, you're looking at you know fourteen to eleven months for a seller before they leave and go on to another job. Yeah, it's not good. Not good. Yeah, the bravado study said eleven months for AEs. Not good. You got to make sure you do the right job. You can still do a great job, hire the right person. There are reasons they might leave, but you just increase the odds of that happening if you don't really focus on the hiring. So, Nigel, sort of come end of time, but. Yeah, tell people about uh, your course on hiring and uh, how they can connect with you. Yeah, so I, I built a course called Hiring Salespeople. It's pretty on the nose and descriptive about what it is. It's uh, two hours of video content, 160 slides, a couple bonuses, including uh, once you hire the person, how to do an effective 90-day review process. I think that's the, the 90 days is the most important tenure for a salesperson's career. Uh, I walk you through step by step the process I've used to hire over or interview over 5,000 different salespeople. Uh, it's $79. You can get it at nigelgreen.co. You can find me on LinkedIn. You know, 79 bucks to ma- maybe prevent a hiring mistake. Sounds like a good deal to me. You know, I'll have a bar tab. It'll be more than that later tonight. So, yeah, yeah it's, it costs you a little more than $79 if you make a hiring yeah. mistake. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Nigel, thank you so much. Andy, like I said, always a pleasure. You did it again. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Talk to you soon. See you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank our guest, Nigel Green, for sharing his insights with us today. As always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling.